Let Brightbird Press's stationery help you get ready for National Novel Writing Month. Their undated planners, journals, notepads, and sticky notes support your busy, creative writing life. Their stationery includes prompts for brainstorming, outlining, character profiles, habit tracking, and more. With hundreds of happy writers and a five-star average review, Brightbird Press wants to help you, too. Simplify your planning and get back to writing. Save 20% on your next order of $20 or more store-wide. Visit brightbirdpress.com and type YMWB20 during checkout. That's YMWB20. Your mom writes books! Yep. It's time to give our opinions on stuff we don't know anything about. Here we go. Listen. This is your mom, right? It's books. Yeah, and background noises from Charlie's cleaning people, and also background noises from the library where I am. That's what else you're hearing today. Yay! Our quality is going down, but our saltiness is going up. Anyway, she's Caitlin McFarland, and I'm Charlie Holmberg. <laughs> oh, I forgot, you guys. I'm so tired today. I'm, I'm not today. We're super professional. Caitlin hasn't podcast for a long time. Yeah, I'm sitting here in the library in my hoodie and my sweatpants, like nobody talked to me. So today I had like, well, we could talk about this or we could talk about this or we could talk about this. And then Caitlin's like, let's just put it all in one podcast, but we only have 55 minutes. So we'll see what happens. Yeah, you just get what you get and you don't throw a fit as I tell my kids. (laughs) Please don't throw a fit. Please give us five-star reviews. Thank you. Okay. So I have a whole list of stuff that we could chat about, about publishing and and all the hot goss then publishing, which we can't yeah. give you legit hot goss because we'll be fired from publishing. You can't fire me. I employ myself. <laughs> um, well, well, yeah. So this is the hot goss episode, you guys. So that's what we're doing today. We're just gonna we're just gonna talk about things that like writers may know, but like maybe readers or people who are just getting into publishing may not know as much. Things that surprised us, I think, when we found them out. Mm, yeah. Yeah, like why you find the books that you find, how reviews work, and like, oh, the New York Times bestseller list—that's a bunch of nonsense. So. Oh yeah. Let's start with that. Yeah. Okay. Go, Charlie. Okay, guys. I get I get very salty about bestseller lists because so I think there's like four big ones, right? I had a I did a reel about this a little bit ago, but there's the New York Times bestseller list, which is the head honcho of all lists. I think it was the first bestseller list, and then there is the USA Today bestseller list. There's the Wall Street Journal bestseller list, and then there's the Amazon Charts bestseller list. So. On Amazon, you can you can be like top in your category. Like, oh, I'm number three in historical young adult fiction. But the Amazon charts is for overall on Amazon, like across the board of books on Amazon. They made their own list that you can chart on. So most of these lists are curated in some way or another. So if lists weren't curated, I can see why they're why some curation might be tasteful to people. Um, I, I think curation is necessary from time to time. Yes. Yeah. Because otherwise the New York list would just be billionaire romances. That said, if if billionaire romances is what everyone is buying, shouldn't those authors get to list? Okay. 
Let's back up and talk about what you mean by a curated list, because when you first said it, I had assumed that you just meant people. Mm, what did I? I don't know what I assumed. Today is not the brain day for Caitlin. Um, it's okay, it makes me look better. Anyways, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Today's for you, Charlie. It's for you. It's Charlie Day. But curate. So when people curate, it means that they put... Um, wow, I can't even... It means that they put specifications on what what makes it so you can get on a list or not. I can't word today either, apparently. <laughs> it's kind of like people are just picking and choosing. So yeah, there. so when you're seeing a bestseller list that is curated, it basically means, well, these are the books that are selling the best out of the books I think are good. Yeah. It does not include every single book out there that is being sold, contrary to popular belief, yeah. which is why there are different bestseller lists with different books on top of them. Yes. That's a really good way to explain it. So the New York Times bestseller list is the most curated list. And like how it's curated has kind of leaked out over the last few years that used to be kept very close to the chest. I mean, it probably still is. Um, for example, I don't know. They used to because I know some indie authors who are New York Times bestsellers. So they used to count indie authors. Today, they if you're an indie author, they don't count you. Like you just can't list. They weight Amazon books very poorly, if they weigh them at all. And they have selected bookstores that they will call up and say, hey, what are your bestsellers this week? Most of those bookstores are on the East Coast. And so it's just very heavily curated. And I genuinely think that there could be people who are like, well, this author sold enough to hit the list, but meh. And just like toss them off. We don't know that that's true. So let's not state that as a fact. That is, uh, that is rumor. That's rumor, I should say. Yeah. yeah. We don't know. Yeah. So base, yeah. So basically, like how it works is that there are like what six ish. I don't know. There are not. There are just like a handful of bookstores. Let's say between a handful and a dozen. I don't know. There are some bookstores. It's not every bookstore in the United States. So when you guys see that something is a New York Times bestseller, it does mean that these specific books are selling really well at a, about a handful of bookstores. Um, it's not an accurate depiction of how many copies of a book were actually sold nationwide in a week. Yeah. And how many books you have to sell to hit a list also depends on the week. Because like one week you can sell 5,000 in a week and you hit and another week... Because like all these big hitters are out, you have to sell 100,000 to hit. So it just depends. Yeah. So you can have people who have the title New York Times bestseller when they came out just during a slow week and only sold, yeah, say 5,000 copies that week. Whereas you can have people who sold 75,000 copies of a book in a week, but because they happened to come out in the same week as like, you know, Stephen King, they did not. And Stephen King, Nora Roberts, you know, like yeah. whatever big, big names hit the list, like all in that week, they didn't either get to number one, so they don't get to be a number one New York Times bestseller, or they don't get on the list at all. Yeah. Trust no one. Everything's a lie. Okay. Then there's the USA Today bestseller list. And USA Today also has some biases against Amazon, but not quite as many. So they will count your Amazon sales, but you have to have. 500 books minimum in another retailer. So you could sell, you have one person who sells a million books in a week on Amazon and somebody else sells 5,000 books in a week on Amazon, but also 500 books on uh, Kobo. 
that second person will hit the USA Today bestseller list. The first person will not. Yeah. And now when you say Amazon, Charlie, can you specify or because I don't actually know when you say Amazon, do you specifically mean eBooks? Do print book sales make a difference? Like what kind of? I would see. I'm not sure. I would assume that print books also make a difference because mm-hmm. I mean, Brandon Sanderson in his podcast that he does, Dan Wells, it's called Intentionally Blank. He says that he 80% of his sales come from Amazon and that's not just ebook mm-hmm. like he's selling hard copies on Amazon mm-hmm. I mean that's where I buy most of my hard copies is on Amazon right so yeah they're they're a notable retailer um as far as counting for the list I don't know if it's strictly ebook or not because mm-hmm. especially with indies list they're selling mostly ebook yeah and that's the thing too which just cracks me up because like how do you actually know who is selling the most books unless you count every format across every platform fully you know yeah and i, I that's i wonder if that's why it's curated it's because it's too much effort well i don't know i don't know it may be hard to get sales it probably is hard to get sales numbers from everybody but also like it is a way like it's a way of gatekeeping it's a way of preventing you know indie authors from or or, and I would say not even necessarily indie authors but romance authors from constantly topping the lists because if bestseller lists were real and true romance authors would constantly be at the top of them oh yeah absolutely romance is a multi it's like what how much did we say it was like 1.4 billion dollar a year industry or something like that I don't know I believe it (laughs) it's some it accounts for such a huge portion of publishing as a whole's like profits yeah also just before i forget your list counts as like what hits in within a week's time i think that week either starts or end on a tuesday somebody explained this to me once you'll notice that books always come out on a tuesday Mm -hmm. because that's how you get the most days in a week to hit a list pre-orders count for first week sales so if people are pre-ordering the book six months up to when it releases, all of those orders count for that first week and it makes it easier for a book to list. Mm -hmm. This is also why I don't do pre-orders on my online store. So if you want to buy signed books from me, you can do it on my website, but I never do pre-orders because I am not a reporting bookstore to anything. And so if I got a bunch of pre-orders, like those wouldn't count. Um, Next is Wall Street Journal bestseller list. So If there is curation here, I don't know what it is. This is the one that me and other APUB authors hit or can hit, I should say. So APUB being separate from KDP, Amazon Publishing is Amazon's traditional publishing branch, whereas KDP, Kindle Direct Publishing is the indie side of Amazon. Right. So APUB authors like like me and like Jeff Wheeler, we can hit the Wall Street Journal bestseller list. And I think they just count books. As far as I know, I haven't heard about curation for that, Mm -hmm. Uh, but we can't hit the New York Times bestseller list. And then after that is Amazon charts, which I also think is just because Amazon knows its numbers. If you sell a lot of books on Amazon's, you hit Amazon charts. Mm -hmm. I've only hit it once. Mm -hmm. That was for Spellmaker, but I don't know. I think it's pretty new. I don't think it existed when I broke into publishing. Yeah. We're like, let's tell you all the gossip, but it's all rumor. We know nothing. (laughs) Sorry. Look, we promised you guys this was going to be like our phone calls and just full of, you know, friendly banter and wild speculation. We're delivering on our premise. Wild speculation is the best. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, so those are the four big ones. There are ways that authors, um, 
game the system, I will say. Mm-hmm. And I could see both ways how it's like, oh, you shouldn't do that. And then, oh, you should totally do that. Because if you have a curated list that's like gaming you, you might as well game the curated list. Right. But yeah, a lot of authors will hit, especially USA Today, by making anthologies. Mm-hmm. And so like they'll have, I've seen anthologies of up to 30 authors Jeez. getting together and they're basically taking, well, I have this readership, you have this readership, you have this readership, let's pool them all together and we'll sell enough copies of this anthology that the anthology will hit the bestseller list and then we can all claim USA Today bestsellers. And so, I mean, if the book is selling and you're in it, what's funny is I just wrote a forward for an anthology that almost listed. It wasn't, it didn't quite hit it, but if it had, I would be a USA Today bestseller because I wrote the foreword. Isn't that crazy? My name's on that book. Somebody told me this. I would have been considered. I would never claim it because I would feel like that was such a joke. Like I wrote a two-page forward for this book. I'm a USA Today bestselling author. Yeah. But yeah, so that's uh, a lot of indie authors. They can hit the USA Today bestseller list. A lot of them do it through anthologies, which if you don't know what an anthology is, it's a collection of short stories. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of them just do it because they market their book like hell. (laughs) So, (laughs) Well, I I just wanted to talk about the reason that kind of all this stuff came out, specifically about the New York Times list a few years ago. And it was that this book, this specific book called, and I just Googled it, I believe it's this one, Handbook for Mortals came out and hit number oh, one in the I New York Times. This. Yeah. And basically... Do you want to know why, dear readers? Do you want to know how they hit the New York Times bestseller list? Yeah. Um, gosh, what did she... Okay, so I feel like... I think what happened was... I know. I know what happened. You want me to tell you? Yeah, you tell the story because you know better than me. She found out... I don't know if it was one store or, or multiple stores. She found out stores that report specifically to the New York Times bestseller list. And she went to those stores and pre-ordered thousands of copies of her own book. It was a woman, right? Who wrote it? Yes. Yeah. 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 So she pre-ordered thousands of copies of her own book and she hit the New York Times bestseller list. They then figured out what she did and they, they took the bestseller title away from her. But mm-hmm. at the same time, it's like, oh, that was so bad. And then I'm also like, you go, girl. Game yeah. that system. Well, and this is what she has to say for herself. So I actually found an article that she wrote on a, um, Huffington Post, on HuffPost.com. And she said, in order to sell books, so she's talking about how she had in-person events in certain places. And so she had, she said, in order to sell books at these events, I had to have books to sell. If I had purchased the books directly from my distributor, it, they would not have they would not count as sales for purposes of the New York Times list. If they were purchased from booksellers, brick and mortar or online, they would count. While I didn't limit my purchases only to these booksellers involved in the Times list, I did purchase books in bulk from booksellers to resell them later at events. So she goes on to say it's like it's not unlike music artists selling CDs at their concerts. So like she's just saying, well, like, yeah, I had to buy my own books anyways to sell them at you know, cons. So I just bought them from places that I knew would count towards the list so that I could get on it. And so she's saying like, no, she didn't game the system. She, she followed the rules, which technically she did. She did. Yeah. Well, I mean, and that's honestly, I think that's legit. Cause like I just said, like, I don't do pre-orders on my website mm-hmm. because I can't count anything. Cause I buy, yeah, I have to buy from wholesale and those don't count on any list anywhere. 
because I don't report anywhere. Like I don't report to BookScan or anything. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, if, if my online store ever became popular enough that we were moving a lot of books, I would have to figure out how to report it. I'm like, because I want credit for that. Yeah. Um, and also, I mean, you can think about it this way too. Like, well, I can spend tens of thousands of dollars in Amazon and Facebook ads, or I can spend tens of thousands of dollars buying my books from this Barnes and Noble that reports the New York Times bestseller list. Like you can think of it as marketing spend. Yeah. And I'm just reselling them for events later. Yeah. Yeah. And this is um, Lonnie Sarum. I think her name is in, yeah, the book was called The Handbook for Mortals. And this was in 2017. Yeah. And you do lose money. Mm -hmm. So you do lose money doing that because if you buy from your distributor, it's like, if it's a hardcover, it's like 11 bucks a book. And if you buy it from like Barnes and Noble, you're going to be paying 20, 25 dollars a book. And so you're going to lose money doing it that way. Mm -hmm. But if, if hitting, if you hit the New York Times bestseller list, that's marketing, mm-hmm. right? People are going to suddenly hear about your book. Yeah. You know, so I can see, I, I genuinely can see it argued both ways. Yeah. Because it's not like it's because people would be like, oh, you know, like, why are you doing it? That's immoral. And it's like, well, it's kind of, a, it's a marketing strategy. People hear about you, you get pub, pub, uh, publicized, whatever. I can look, today is not the thing. Um, <laughs> so you get out your name out there. You, and you get clout. And there's also the expectation, which is why this list is curated, there's the expectation that your book will be quality. And so then more people will buy it, right? It's just mm-hmm. all strategy. And like, yeah, like you said, like on the one hand, it's like, eh, you know, you want to know that a book you get off the New York Times bestseller list is of a certain quality. But at the same time, if they're not being, if they're being disingenuous about how they choose those books, then I don't feel that I have no quandary with with beating them at their own game to get on the list. Yeah. Can you, I was also say like doing this, is it immoral if the list itself is not moral? Well, and it's not that the list is immoral necessarily. necessarily. It's not wrong to have a curated list. What I think is disingenuous about the about that list is the fact that people don't know how it works. If you're transparent about how you choose your books, then Yes. Yeah, they're very hush-hush, though. Yeah, and that's the problem. That's the thing that I have a problem with because you're pretending like, no, these aren't the best of the best. That's the best of the best chosen by people on the East Coast who have different tastes and different cultural preferences and contexts than people elsewhere in the country. Yeah. So lists are fun. So so fun. (laughs) All right. So we are very late to the game on this one. We'll blame Caitlin for that. Sorry. Had to move across the country into the woods. Um... (laughs) But Brandon had a very successful Kickstarter this year. One might say the most successful Kickstarter in all history, beating out the Pebble Watch. Yeah, one might say, because it's true. How much money did he make, Charlie? $40 million in a month on Kickstarter. Yeah. And so, yeah, Brandon sent, like, I'm. you have to have heard this if you're in the fantasy world, right? Like, Brandon Sanderson had an record-breaking Kickstarter, just kicked the trash of every Kickstarter ever. He is using it to basically what's he, isn't he like self-publishing basically like four books, like a series? Yeah. So he wrote four books over the pandemic because he wasn't traveling anymore. So he had all this time. And so he wrote three Cosmere books and then one other book. And uh, he's essentially self-publishing those. He is not becoming... I guess technically that makes him a hybrid author. He is not leaving his publisher or anything like that. He does want to stay with Tor. And again, if you guys want to hear his 
uh, take on all of this, you can go check out Intentionally Blank. Oh my gosh. Intentionally Blank. <laughs> blank. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Well, and because it made so much money, I heard that he... Tell me if this is right, Charlie. I heard that he's also going to produce a Mistborn movie. Is that right? I have not heard anything about that. I think that he probably has sold the rights to every single book he has ever written. He definitely, anyone who wasn't paying attention to Brandon is definitely paying attention to him now. I believe that Fox has the rights to all of his Cosmere stuff. But as far as him making his own movie, I don't know. I know. Okay, so yeah, I don't actually see, I just heard that. I don't actually see... So I know that Sanderson, okay, so he did work on a Mistborn screenplay, and he has a deal with DMG Entertainment. Is that part of Fox, or was I wrong on that? No idea. DMG optioned The Way of Kings as well, it says. So it seems like, basically, it's just saying that because of this Kickstarter, it's changed the playing field, and it kind of makes him a power player. It has shown, like, big money people who do movie type things that, like, authors can like, I guess authors do actually have clout and pull with their fans and can bring in money. So let's just say that, I guess. We, oh, it's 45 million is what this article is saying. It was 45? The 45 million Kickstarter coup and the media attention it has generated has turned Sanderson into a power player. And that is on an article from August 29th of this year, 2022. It says on tour.com that says, please adapt Brandon Sanderson's Cosmere. <laughs> So, yes. So maybe he's not doing it, but I had heard that he maybe would use some of the money for something like that or something. He's very transparent. Yeah, he is. Yeah, which is what I like about him. Yeah. Let's throw Brandon under the bus for just a second because his people came after my people and now my people can't work as many hours as I want them to. (laughs) Okay, first of all, let's clarify that his person and your person are the same person. It's Christy. She was mine first. <laughs> What's really funny. So my assistant, Christy, is an incredibly competent person. And mm. one month after I hired her, she got approached by people who work for Dragonsteel, which is uh, Brandon's company. And they also wanted to hire her. And so <laughs> she works for both of us now. Uh, one of us pays her more and it's not me. <laughs> One of us did not just have a $45 million Kickstarter. <laughs> However, let's get back to things our listeners care about. <laughs> they, everyone cares about this. Um, so you guys have probably heard, this is this is connected to the Kickstarter. You, po- you guys have probably heard that Penguin and Simon, Sh- Simon Schuster, who are two of the big five publishers in the United States, mm-hmm. uh, want to merge and now the United States government is trying to stop them from merging because it'll make, what's the word? It's not monopoly. It's like monoscopy or uh, something. It is monopoly. A word I didn't know. Ex- no, that's not oh, what okay. it is. Well, they're using. I know something you don't. Oh, you do. They're using antitrust laws basically to try to yeah. stop them from merging. To stop them from having too much control over the industry. It's, it's a monopoly, but not quite, because technically there are other publishers, but essentially if Penguin and Simon Schuster merge, they will become so big that it's going to almost be a monopoly in the United States. It's going to mess up publishing even more than it's already messed up. I'll, I'll just read what this says. I'm on um, MLEX marketing site, 
and Penguin, Penguin, comma, Simon Schuster cite non-traditional publishing as competitive threat, but name few successes during U.S. merger trial. So when they were like, oh, no, we have to do this. We have to be stronger because the indies are coming for us. They did cite Brandon's Kickstarter. They're like, well, this guy who's an indie author, quote, indie author, raised $40 million. And now we have to merge because we're poor. <laughs> Here's why traditional publishing is poor. Traditional publishing is poor because it refuses to update its practices for a, for a modern marketplace. And it refuses to support, it signs authors, then refuses to support them through marketing. Mm -hmm. It signs, it has a throw the spaghetti against the wall method of trying to figure out what's yeah. going to hit. And, you know, like there's so many reasons and it won't, it won't price its eBooks low enough to compete with indies. No, they like they will charge like seventeen, eighteen dollars for ebooks. Some of these publishers will. If publishers want to compete with indies, stop charging ten dollars for an ebook. Duh. Gosh, that's so stupid. And here's the thing too: do it, do what the movie industry did, and just sell the dang books with the dang codes yeah. inside them for the ebook. You want to see a boost in sales? Let people buy. You can make ebooks for freezies. You have infinite ebooks for free. Stop charging $18 for them. Yeah. <sighs> well, the thing is who people don't want to pay that much for ebooks because at least for me, and maybe I'm just old, there's always this fear that like someday the servers will shut down and I won't have access to my stuff anymore. So I'm not going to pay $18 for something that I don't have a physical copy of that I can hold in my hand. So... Listen, I've been following this and I still don't totally know everything that's happening, but I'm on the uh, latimes.com and it's saying that the merger would drastically change the publishing world, whittling down the number of major publishing houses known as the big five to four. And then they had Stephen King testify and he was saying, it says that he publicly criticizes the deal because uh, Simon Schuster apparently is his longtime publisher. Mm-hmm. I love that because he's like, what are they going to do? Not publish me? I'm Stephen King. <laughs> yeah, right. Anybody else would pick them out. Mm -hmm. So Paramount Global wants to uh, sell Simon & Schuster to Penguin Random House for, guess the number, Caitlin? I have no clue. $2.18 billion. And then the Department of Justice specifically is suing to block the, the deal on grounds that too much consolidation was bad for authors and ultimately for readers. And it is bad for authors. It does make it hard for us. And it is bad for readers, too. If you guys don't like the more publishers there are, the more diversity and stuff we'll see. And I don't just mean diversity in like the modern sense of uh, diversity in stories and thought and you know, like the kinds of stories that are published and the genres that are published that that's, you know, as well as everything else. Yeah. So I guess trying to say we need to do this, they did cite Brandon's Kickstarter. And what's really interesting when Brandon's Kickstarter happened is that I feel like authors were split and people were either saying this is the worst or this is the best, right? Because they're like, oh no, a white male author made money on books. <laughs> everything is going bad. Yes. <laughs> well, let's just, we'll, we're not surprised that the person to do this is a white male author. Let's just put that out there. Um, that's legit because it is, it would be fair to point out that a female author, romance author tried to do this 
I don't know at what point she tried to do it, but she was basically harassed off of Kickstarter because people were like, what are you doing? This isn't, you're not supposed to do this. Like you're lazy. Oh, I did hear about that. Yeah. Yeah. You're just trying to take people's money. So it is fair to point that out. Now. Yeah. She was not as successful as Brandon. So like not, I cannot get on Kickstarter and do this and raise $40 Mm -hmm. million. I do not have the readership for it. It's just not going to happen. Um, and she probably couldn't either, but yeah, that is a really good thing to point out. It's like, mm-hmm. why was she harassed for it? That's not cool. Um, that said, I mean, Brandon is one of my favorite authors. Like, I think he absolutely deserves all the success he has. And it's and these are readers pay I paid. Listen, guys, I paid like 120 <laughs> bucks so I could get all these books on Kickstarter too. Because they're good books. He's a fantastic writer, and this just shows like readers want these books you can't really get mad at something that's crowdfunded because yeah it's some it means that people want it right like it's but you know like how did he get where he got all that stuff how did he get as popular why aren't other people more popular you can ask those questions too but it's not really his fault i guess you could say Mm -hmm. and like what's he supposed to do not do it because i would say also brandon sanderson is one of the best people out there at being transparent with what he does, being transparent yes. about his processes, giving back to the writing community. He provided classes for free before anybody else. You can still get them for free on YouTube. He let people record his classes and mm-hmm. post them to YouTube without any compensation. Yep. And he, I think, is very good at amplifying other writers' voices. Like, you see writing excuses. The reason, I think, the reason people start listening to that podcast is because they hear it's Brandon Sanderson's podcast. Mm -hmm. And then he has, you know, and now if you listen to writing excuses too, like, there are what last I heard, and I haven't listened to it in a while, but there are like two casts and one is based in Chicago and, and it has all sorts of people on it, right? Like, I feel like Brandon tries at least to elevate where he can now that he is you know, and whether or not he think that he got where he is too easily, at least he's trying to help other people. Mm-hmm. As far as I know, I can only speak to what knowledge I have, right? Yeah. So. No, I think Brandon works hard. What's really cool is that before his Kickstarter was even done, he had a bunch of people on his staff looking up other Kickstarters in the publishing category. And they did went That's right. to every single person there, unless they, they had like a few caveats. Like if it was something that was like erotica, they didn't do it for that. But they went mm-hmm. and contributed to or fully funded every other Kickstarter in the publishing category. That is amazingly mm-hmm. generous. That is super generous. So they would either buy, they would either contribute and like get the books from them, or they would be like, you know what? We really like this. We're going to fully fund it. And they would donate thousands of dollars to fully fund other Kickstarters. Yeah. Yeah. Brandon Sanderson does, he elevates other authors better than almost like we all, you know, we all in our local communities try to teach and try to give back and, and stuff. But like he does it, he's able to do it on this massive scale that most of us can't do. And I do think that that's really admirable. Yeah, absolutely. I'm excited to get my books. <laughs> <laughs> I would be too. My assistant, Christy, is working on them right now. And I try to peek over her shoulder and she swats me away. As she should. As she should. <laughs> so if you want to, again, hear more about the Kickstarter and more about the Simon Schuster stuff, even just go listen to Intentionally Blank. They're mm-hmm. going to talk about it a lot better than I do. 
Especially because, like, I listened to them talk about it, like, three months ago. So yeah. now I'm like, I don't remember what they said. Yeah, man, I wish we could have released a timely episode when the Kickstarter was going on because that was a wild time. And, like, I am so ecstatically happy to see an author have that kind of success, too. Like, Absolutely. Our, yeah, like, I feel like authors are kind of pushed aside when it comes to, like, big budget things like movies and stuff. And, and writers kind of tend to be, like, the plebs of the creative storytelling world sometimes and i'm like "Mm, we're the we power this machine what do you think you're doing well and it makes you wonder is this going to open doors of opportunity for authors to go directly to readers like yeah he raised 40 million 45 million dollars without a publisher yes you know yeah and he and again like he has a huge readership he's got a head start like again i can't do that Mm -hmm. but could i publish books in the future that are just all funded by the readers mm-hmm. and then publishing is going to become more obsolete. And I like publishing. I like publishers. They are so slow to <laughs> adapt new things yeah. and so slow to like move forward with the times, especially like I, what I really feel bad about. And I was talking about this at ANWA this last weekend, the American Night Writers Association is that, the best thing to D is traditionally published and be incredibly successful. Mm-hmm. Where you have another publisher doing all your advertising, all your marketing for you, and you're just raking in the bucks writing books. The next best thing to be is indie published where you have control over everything. And if you ha- obviously it takes a lot of work. You have to learn how to do it. You have to put the money in, but you can market yourself. You can advertise for yourself and you can be successful. The worst place to be in is to be traditionally published and your publisher doesn't care. Yeah. They don't put in the marketing. They don't put in the advertising because they still own your book. And you can't change your cover. You can't change your prices. You can do very little to take that book and actually market it the way that will make it successful because another publisher owns it and they won't do anything for you. That is the worst place to be, in my opinion. Yeah, especially if you're somebody who's very proactive about wanting to, you know, Mark, like you said, market your book, be in charge of the business of you being an author. Um, that It's a very frustrating place to be. If you're content to just kind of write books and be like, eh, they'll take it or they won't. I don't super care. I'm just happy to have a copy of my book, you know, like when it gets published. That's fine. Um, do you want to talk about Whisper Networks a little bit? Yes, let's talk about Whisper. Because this is supposed to be the hot goss and we've only talked about like a couple of things. So yeah, let's do Whisper yeah. Networks. We're running out of time. Let's run through some stuff. <laughs> Caitlin. What is a whisper network? (laughs) The whisper network. Well, I assume there are whisper networks in all industries, um, but specifically in what we've experienced, um, the whisper network is when a group of authors get together at, you know, in a casual setting, like at somebody's house or having a write night, they're just hanging out or they're, you know, hanging out in each other's hotel rooms during a conference or whatever. And Especially, and I can specifically talk to this experience among female authors, um, they tell you who to avoid. They tell you who to avoid so that you don't get harassed, sexually harassed. They tell you um, who to avoid in business, um, kind of like agents to avoid, editors to avoid. They tell you like, oh, well, I heard such and such editor is actually about to leave that publishing house. Or they tell you like, oh, such and such an agent's clients haven't heard from them in six months. Or, you know, that's the kind of stuff. Um, And yeah, and yeah, that's pretty much what you hear. It's just stuff that we're not supposed to talk about. That we should be talking about. 
but we should be talking about, you know, yeah. Publishing is very much a tiptoe industry. And like, even though there's so many authors and all this stuff going on out there, it still feels very small. You, you act like a diva. Other people are going to know about it kind of thing. So there's mm-hmm. a reason people can't just get on Twitter and say, oh, Jane Doe is a terrible agent because they will get harassed. They will get put down and they will have a hard time getting an agent. They'll have a hard time getting published because they basically get blacklisted. And so that's Mm -hmm. why we have to have whisper networks and say, hey, Jane Doe is a terrible agent. Don't query her. You know, unless who is that agent? There was a male agent who got blasted on Twitter for doing some really big, bad thing. And I can't remember who it was or what he did. Uh, I don't know. You know, obviously, like if if you have an editor who has an OnlyFans and on their OnlyFans, they just post pictures of them killing puppies all the time. Like that's going to get out on Twitter and people are going to have a big complaint about it. That's not a whisper network kind of thing. Yeah. No, no. But yeah. So there's like, you know, not all agents are good agents. How do you know about the bad agents? You have to get into a whisper network. Yeah. And it's annoying when you're like new or you don't have a lot of writers around. You're like, well, how am I going to hear about it? Mm -hmm. You know? But that's how you have to do it. Or like, oh, so-and-so harassed this author at this convention. What's mm-hmm. Whisper Network about it? In fact, and I'm not going to name names, but there was an author who got called out during the Me Too movement. There were several authors who got called out during the Me Too movement. I'm thinking about I'm thinking about one specific, specifically. So I'm thinking about a specific author who got called out during the Me Too movement. And the one of the women he harassed wrote this big, long article about it. And she specifically said, I am doing this because I am not planning on publishing again in the future, Mm -hmm. which is really unfortunate because she says, I wouldn't be able to out this person if I wanted to keep publishing because I'm probably going to get blacklisted essentially, Mm -hmm. which is awful. And then she just named, she named the person right at the bottom. Yeah. Like this is who it was. Yeah. And that's, that's the, like, I'm thinking of like, because the way I'm thinking of it, like when, so when you say Whisper Network, yeah, like the agent stuff for sure. Like that's probably actually what it is mostly. But I'm also thinking of like how people will be like, well, if you're on a panel, and okay, but it's also like stuff too. Like, well, if you're on a panel with this person at cons, they're going to just go off on some random tangent and only talk about themselves. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> that kind of stuff gets talked about too. Um, or you do hear things like the New York Times bestseller list stuff. I first heard about on what I would consider the Whisper Network. On a Whisper Network. Yeah. And so... Yeah, it's just industry gossip. It's, you know, it's talk about other people that like you want to avoid or maybe somebody you actually do. You know, it can be good too. It's like, oh yeah, this person is looking for this right now. Like so-and-so's agent is not really open to queries, but if you go through them, like you can get in with their agent. Like it's that kind of stuff too. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, but like I said, this kind of thing is like if you exists in any industry if you live in like a small town if you're part of a community it exists within whisper networks exist within all communities um it's just the stuff that you're kind of not supposed to talk about but have you heard (laughs) yeah absolutely and i don't know if that's ever going to change in the future but no whisper networks will never go away well i mean like for publishing if we're ever going to be able to talk about this stuff oh for publishing more transparent no i feel like there is a a distinct lack of transparency in publishing as a whole. I feel like in there is a distinct lack of, lack of transparency in a lot of big business entertainment industries. Yeah. I think Hollywood's Whisper Network makes publishing look like children in a sandbox. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. 
So the last thing we want to talk about with our last few minutes before she, uh, Caitlin gets kicked out of the library. That's right. Is this rumor that uh, young adult fiction is dying. Right. Which you like, is it a rumor? It's an idea that floats around every once in a while, I think, for sure. Um, Alexa Dunn made a video about it, but it was back in 2020. But I think it's interesting. And I think it's interesting to talk about. Also, I do want to say if Alexa Dunn has been has really great videos on publishing. Um, that's Alexa D O N N E, not you, Alexa. Um, anyway, but she also has been getting saltier, and so her videos have been very enjoyable this year. <laughs> so definitely recommend um, watching her stuff and subscribing to her. But yeah, so what I have seen, what I've seen, what I have heard is that. Uh, young adult fantasy specifically is going off trend. It's not being acquired as much. It's a very, very saturated market. Mm-hmm. Um, all the books are kind of starting to like seem seem the same. Nothing new's coming up. I think YA fantasy got really big around the time that Twilight came out, and I think it. I think YA got really big around the time Twilight came out. Yeah, YA in general. Yeah. Which is good because we need books in that age category, which makes me think we were, I was looking at an Alexa Dunn video where she was responding to hot takes and somebody was complaining that adults shouldn't be reading young adult novels. And I can get on that bandwagon. I understand why I've read young adult novels too, because sometimes it's hard. You want something fast paced or you want something clean, quote, clean. And so we read YA novels, but- Oh, gosh, we could do a whole episode on that, though, because I'm like, to me, there are almost two kinds of YA. There's what would be called like younger YA that's actually written for teenagers, teenagers. And then there is YA that is kind of written not for teenagers, where the characters are really 18 or 19 anyways. And it's kind of like they slide it into YA because YA sells and they know it's going to find its audience in YA. But like... The story has nothing to do with being a teenager. It could have been written about 25-year-olds. Yeah, well, that just goes back to that. You go back like seven, eight episodes, guys, and we have an uh, episode on the female gaze in writing Mm -hmm. and how a lot of female authors and writing books about women get relegated to YA anyway. So go listen to that so we don't have to just rehash it. But yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I think there are books that are meant for teenagers, and I think there are books that are categorized as for teens, but they're actually writing for adult women specifically. Yeah, and it's all just a marketing thing. So yeah, but I mean, when it comes to like, is YA dying? Like, it's just like, for me, I mean, dying is such a crazy word, because publishing has gone through such massive changes in the last decade that it's like, you can't say, like, you don't know. And everything's cyclical anyways. And publishing, I've been hearing for my whole writing career that paranormal romance is dead. But have you seen TikTok? TikTok did not do that well. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I think I've I've also heard that a paranormal romance is dead. But I think I've heard that it is coming back. And I think in part because of book talk. It's coming. Thank you, TikTok. Yeah. Thank you, TikTok. Appreciate you. But I would hope, here's, here's, here's my thought on it. I hope YA is dying. And I hope specifically it is those books that are not actually written for teens. They're written for adults that are in YA. I hope that that is dying and that those books are going to be lifted into the adult category and just be sold as Mm -hmm. normal books. And now instead of having 
somehow to make a 17 year old assassin work in a book. You can now make that assassin 37 and the book makes sense, but the pacing is still the same. Yay. <laughs> yeah. And that, yeah. And she, Charlie's right. We talked about this in our female gaze and fantasy episode. And it's like, yeah, can you just like, that's my biggest problem with YA. And a lot of the times why I'll just put a book down because they're like, and she was the toughest, most experienced assassin. And I'm like, she's 15. Please desist. <laughs> um, and then they're writing these characters as if they are, they're talking like they're 30. They're, yes. you know, going around like they're as experienced as if they're 30. And I'm like, just write a book about a 30 year old. And it doesn't have to be what you think of as adult fantasy. It can be this, it can be exactly like YA, except for just make her age higher, you yeah. know? Yeah. It's fine to write books about grown-ups. Like it's also fine to write books about teenagers if what you want to do is write books write about for teenagers. Children. Yes. Because teenagers are children. I have one, trust me, she's a child. Well, I mean, like you'll see YA books that are great books and the main character's 18, 19 or 20 even and they're still mm -hmm. in YA and it's the reason is I I feel these authors want to write about adults but this is the category they're getting shoved into. So they're making them as adult as they can and still yeah. stay within the bounds of their category. And I'm like, great, break the category. Let's open it wide open and put these books wherever yeah. we want. But this is where self-publishing and indie publishers or indie authors, I mean, this is where indie authors come in because indie authors are doing this. Indie yes. authors are doing this. Absolutely. So. Freaking lutely. So you guys have all heard about new adult, like most bookstores act like new adult doesn't exist which is essentially like a ya style of story but with older characters i mean usually not mm -hmm. older than 24 which come on let's get up let's get them up there i would be cool with even not just having new adult just call it all adult it's just adult just it doesn't adult. have to be special kind of adult yeah. fantasy just because it's written by and for women let's just call it what it is it's adult freaking fantasy but if you're looking specifically for new adult you go to a bookstore it's gonna be hard to find it but you go on KDP on your Kindle and look, bam, 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 bam. It it's like, and I think that's one of the reasons why so many women are writing indie is because there's not a place for them. Like these are the books I want to yeah. tell. Nobody wants to buy them unless I take five, 10 years off my character or mm -hmm. I make add 10,000, 20,000, 50,000 words of exposition to make it sound like an adult novel. And yeah. so, yeah, uh, it's, uh, come on, publishing, we can do it. And if you want to know how you can, because the thing about KDP sometimes can be, can be like kind of sorting through things to find out, you know, like, is this kind of, because there's some indie stuff that because there aren't gatekeepers, sometimes it's not as great. Um, and you want to find the higher quality stuff. And I will say the best place to find it, and I'm sorry if you're not on the here, but TikTok. TikTok, if you get the algorithm right and you get on the correct, like if you get on BookTok, as they say, and if you're like on there, people will recommend. And you can see the same books kind of coming up. And if you see the same people kind of recommending, at least you kind of know where to start. So yeah, because honestly, like some of the best books we find are the ones that are recommended by just like a person you know. You know, and I feel like book yeah. talk's just a step mm -hmm. above that. Yeah, it's just kind of, you know, it just gives you access to. And if you're, let me just say, if you're into um, monster romance, now is your time. It is your time. <laughs> Go on TikTok, find those recommendations. They are there. Monster romance and um, fae romance. It is your time. Yeah. So um, my time is almost up at the library. So we got to wrap this up. Um do you have a pun, Charlie? I'm just like trying to figure out something. Um, what do you call a fleet of planes 
that fly very quietly. Whisper Jetworks. I'm so sorry. Oh my gosh. I'm so sorry. I had three seconds to come up with something. And I'm sorry to everybody else. Just kidding. That was pretty good. I liked it. I liked it. Anyway, I'm Charlie N. Holmberg. You can find me at charlienholmberg.com on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at CN Holmberg. But really, I'm only cool on Instagram. Um, I am the author of the Paper Magician series, the Numina series, the Spellbreaker series, and the upcoming Wimbrel House series. Woo. Which, hold on. What's, I need a calendar. It's the 22nd. Yes. Awesome. So I can say this. At the time that this comes out, the Keeper of Enchanted Rooms is an Amazon First Reads. So if you guys are Prime members, you can go to Amazon First Reads and get the ebook for free. If you are not a Prime member, you can get it for a buck ninety-nine. And because October is like Amazon Prime Month, you can actually download two books from Amazon First Reads. So if I'm not your first choice, I am happy to be your second. So go check out Keeper of Enchanted Rooms <laughs> today. Yay, and that's Charlie. And I'm Caitlin McFarland, and you can't find me. I live in the forest. Um, we're going to work on that. Don't worry. <laughs> Shit. We'll get... I don't look. I don't have any of my Etsy stuff with me right now. It's in a pod in Lehigh, Utah, and I'm not in Lehigh, Utah. I don't look. I am not published currently, but Charlie and I are working on getting my books back out because Charlie's the best. Um, yep. And I don't know if this is like a thing. So like, don't get excited because I do this all the time, but I've kind of started another series that I'm like trying to ride that paranormal romance wave. Please, please finish it. <laughs> um, trying to like fast draft some kind of like witchy, um, if you like Appalachian or Southern Gothic horror, I'm going to do some like kind of like small town witchy yes. paranormal romance type stories yes. that are based in the area where I'm living right now, which is called the Ozarks. And if you haven't heard of the Ozarks, it's a lot like Appalachia. Um, just like a like kind of the same deal where it's like lots of forests and mountainy type stuff and like people who live in the holler. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, um, and I really, I kind of grew up coming here for vacations. My family's been coming down here for 50 years and I really love this area. So I thought it would be really fun to get it in some books. Get it done. Get it done. <laughs> we'll see what happens. I could have just gotten all of you excited for nothing, which is what I love to do to Charlie. I love to write first chapters. If you would like to harass <laughs> Caitlin about her books, you can email us at yourmomwritesbooks at gmail.com and put attention Caitlin in the subject line. Please read, read please rate and review us. Uh, you can rate us on Spotify and review us on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends so that we can keep growing and having cool ads like the one at the beginning of this episode. Woo! Yeah, um, we're cool now. So I just flipped down my sunglasses. I didn't. I'm not wearing any, but pretend. Like that's what I just did. We're cool now. We got advertising. But I... I like this advertiser, this person we're advertising for because it's actually something like useful <laughs> and good and relevant to you guys. So yeah, no, Caitlin yeah. was very excited about it. Very excited. And if you would like to advertise with your mom writes books, you can email us at yep. your mom at gmail.com. Thanks guys. Bye. We'll see you next week. Bye.